Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of The Fourth Leg. This is your host, Philip Reiner. This series is focused on one of the most complex systems in the world today, nuclear command, control, and communications, and its increasingly complicated future. With this series, together with our partner Peter Hayes at the Nautilus Institute, we're going straight to the experts across multiple sectors to discuss the technical and policy challenges associated with NC3. Specifically, here in Season 2, we will discuss the necessity for a secure, global crisis communications capability. There's a great deal to cover, so let's get started. Our podcast this week goes back to first principles. What is a hotline? Why does it matter? In today's discussion, we will dive deep into the history and geopolitics of hotlines and their impact in different nuclear risk reduction efforts over the years. This season of the fourth leg has dived deeper into the emerging risks associated with 21st century NC3 modernization. Our proposed risk reduction system, the Catalink system, actually follows generations of hotlines that have emerged ever since the Cuban Missile Crisis. For some perspective, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Steve Miller, who is the director of the International Security Program at the Kennedy School, and is also the Editor-in-Chief of International Security. He's an expert in all things nuclear weapons, conflict resolution, and he has penned a deeply insightful piece for us on the history and the role of hotlines for our overall project. We're also pleased today to welcome Ben Lurkey from the Stanley Center for Peace and Security's program on nuclear weapons. He's a valuable partner to IST and to Nautilus on the overall Catalink project. Thank you, Steve and Ben, for joining Peter and I here today, and welcome to the Fourth Leg Podcast. It's really great to have both of you join us here today. We appreciate you making the time. So coming to this conversation, as you are both so already very much aware, we're building off of this this idea that hotlines remain a useful nuclear risk reduction tool, and that with the right understanding, the right process, and perhaps the right technologies, we could instigate and perhaps build a secure crisis hotline system for the 21st century, for the environment in which we find ourselves here today, which is markedly different from the one that saw hotlines back in the 20th century. This is what we're calling Catalink. Steve, thank you for joining us here today. You really wrote a fantastic paper for this conversation and for the engagements we've been having on this set of issues focused on the history of hotlines and the applicability of the role that they've played historically. For everyone listening, this is a paper that we'll be jointly publishing with the Nautilus Institute and the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Very excited about getting this out there to kind of reestablish the baseline, the understanding of the historical context. But Steve, for those who haven't perhaps had a chance to read the paper yet, they're just listening in for the first time, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what is a nuclear hotline? And what's the role they've played over the years? And how do they differ from, say, a a non-nuclear hotline? We'd really love just to kind of kick things off with a basic discussion of what these things actually are. Sure. The idea of a hotline traces its origin to the notion that uh, communication between antagonistic states uh, during a crisis or in various stages of the war could be critically important. And this uh, idea pressed itself 
on the agenda in the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the leaders on both sides had felt that they were in the grips of escalatory pressures, which they could not uh, necessarily entirely control, and in which the uh, capacity to communicate between the heads of state on the two sides was uh, slow and cumbersome. And anyone familiar with the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis knows that it was an extremely alarming experience for those who were in positions of authority at the time, that there were an array of uh, complications and near misses, including some that were not fully understood at the time, but were revealed uh, later as the history of the event began to be pieced together in greater detail. And it was picked up as a policy initiative uh, almost immediately after the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The idea was that the leaders of the Soviet Union and the United States, in the midst of an intense crisis, when they felt that things might be slipping out of control or when the two sides might be pulling one another over the edge into war, that they ought to have some capacity to communicate directly, quickly, and reliably with one another, forms of communication which had not manifest themselves in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So soon thereafter, in June of 1963, uh, an agreement was signed to, to put in place something that was called the hotline. Uh, and it basically was a direct telecommunications link which tied Moscow and Washington and in the American and Soviet context, was intended to connect directly the heads of state on the two sides. So communication at the highest levels. And I think the, the best way to conceive of this was that those who lived through the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis felt an urgent need to create what you might describe as a kind of off-ramp when you're on the superhighway heading to disaster. And that was the basic notion. The original hotline went into effect uh, in uh, the fall of 1963. Uh, it is operated continuously ever since, and it has been upgraded uh, on multiple occasions over the decades to reflect advances in technology. But the basic concept, that is to say, providing the ability for the highest decision makers on both sides to communicate directly with one another in the midst of an intense crisis, that basic concept remains sort of unchanged and intact, even though the technological apparatus associated, the infrastructure associated with uh, actually implementing the hotline notion has, has evolved across time. Steve, you've outlined the role of the U.S.-Soviet, now Russian, nuclear hotline. And 60 years later, things have changed. Not only have U.S.-Russian relationships sort of evolved, but there are now nuclear hotlines involving the other seven nuclear armed states as well. So how has this initial role of a nuclear hotline born in the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, evolved in different sort of contexts of basically peacetime or non-war, non-nuclear war, as we know it, limited war, or in the midst of all-out war between some of these nuclear-armed antagonists. Sure. Well, the idea that originated in the, in the Soviet-American context then was picked up in other settings. The tap root of it in the entire universe of cases has to do with the centrality of communications 
a notion that is very strongly associated with the famous strategic theorist Thomas Schelling, who emphasized very strongly in his work that the management of nuclear relationships in general and crisis management in particular not only hinged importantly on but depended centrally on the ability to communicate clearly and in a timely fashion when necessary. And that time urgency actually is a big piece of the the picture in the sense that when events appear to be slipping out of control, being able to take action or resolve issues in a timely manner before it's too late can be the crucial variable. And so part of the point was to have in place and pre-existing a mechanism that permitted prompt communication when timely intervention in a crisis might, might be decisively important. So this idea spread out of the uh, Soviet-American context. But I would say that, that as it has been adapted to other settings, while that same basic notion lies at the heart of it, that is to say the desirability of having reliable, available means of communication, the notion has been enlarged in, in several senses. One is that the communications links that were created in other settings uh, were not always devoted to linking just the heads of state, and it was sometimes linkages between foreign minister to foreign minister or linkages between senior military authorities and senior military authorities on the other side. There are uh, contributions or value added associated with communications at multiple levels of governance, uh, but this is a somewhat different manifestation than a preoccupation with the president of the United States and the, the supreme leader of the Soviet Union. In addition, in the Soviet-American context, the hotline was conceived of and retained its essential identity as a, an emergency crisis management mechanism. And in other settings, it has been used in a more routinized way, although it can also obviously be an instrument for employment in, in the midst of a crisis. But in circumstances where there's very little normal uh, interaction, for example, in the relationship between North and South Korea, there is a hotline. But the reality seems to be that that hotline is, is used for an array of other bargaining and communication purposes outside of the context of crises, although it exists also in the crisis management context. And there have been occasions uh, in the various flare-ups with North Korea when the hotline has been actually exercised as a, an emergency communication mechanism. But basically, if you look at all of the hotlines that exist, they're uh, spread across an array of levels of government, and uh, some of them are used in a more normalized setting for more routine communications, in addition to having the emergency communications function. So the Soviet-American one has some distinct properties that have been modified somewhat as the instrument has been adapted or employed in other settings. That's interesting. Hotlines are often talked about as a risk reduction measure. Steve, I'm wondering for the ones that you just mentioned, they're used for more routine communications. How well do those function as confidence building measures? Well, the early champions of hotlines very much viewed their creation and, and existence 
as a kind of confidence-building measure because the creation of such an arrangement reflected at least an implicit, if not explicit, acknowledgement of a mutual interest in avoiding reciprocally undesirable outcomes. And it also reflected or betrayed a willingness to communicate in ways that allowed what you might call almost a joint conspiracy against escalatory pressures, which might pull both parties over the brink. John Kennedy, in his famous American University commencement speech, refers to the hotline in this context and raises it in connection with a long passage in which he's talking about what he called the mutually deep interest that the Soviet Union and the United States both had in avoiding a large war because our societies would both be devastated by such a war. And so there is a kind of implicit acknowledgement of a joint or shared interest in avoiding certain kinds of disastrous outcomes that would be disastrous for both parties. In the Soviet-American context, the June 1963 hotline agreement was the first instance in the entire nuclear age in which the Soviet Union and the United States proved able to reach any sort of bilateral agreement that addressed nuclear dangers. So it was, in a sense, a kind of breakthrough and a kind of existence theorem that demonstrated the possibility that was possible despite the great rivalry between the two powers, uh, that it was possible to fashion some arrangements that protected both against the worst possibilities of, of nuclear catastrophe. And in that sense, it was an important arms control uh, breakthrough. Are there ways that hotlines can actually be inflammatory? Could they become a source of risk? Yes. You know, I, I mentioned that one can think of a hotline as a kind of off-ramp on the road to disaster. But you don't have to take that off-ramp. And in fact, if you're aiming for disaster, you don't want to take that, that off-ramp. But more to the point, I think a hotline is properly understood as another instrument of statecraft. And it's available for use to the leaders on both sides. And of course, one option for those leaders is to use it for its intended purpose, that is, to de-escalate a crisis that's growing too dangerous such that both sides feel the need to ratchet down the escalatory pressures. But it's a mechanism that can be used for any other purpose that a government might choose to employ it for. It can be used to communicate threats. And while much of the hotline traffic in the Soviet American context was done privately and some of it is still not declassified and so on, there's enough glimpses out there that you can see that on various occasions it was used to communicate threats. Very famously in 1967, in the midst of the 1967 Middle East War, when the Soviets sent a hotline message basically threatening war if uh, Israel did not stop its offensive operations. Jimmy Carter sent a very harsh a hotline message to the Soviets on the occasion of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which uh, Carter described in his memoirs as the harshest message he sent during his entire presidency. It's also imaginable, although I'm unaware of any you know, available evidence of it as of yet in the historical record, that a, a deceitful or aggressive government could use the hotline to deceive or to try and inflame uh, a situation. It's also 
the case that the hotline can be simply ignored. Governments will have an array of uh, instruments to use in any given situation, and some may be more appealing or, or useful to their aims than others. There's analysis, for example, in, in the run-up to the 1967 war, which where pressure was brewing for weeks and it appeared that a, a large uh, crisis was about to happen, this was an occasion when the hotline might have been used, but, but in fact was not by either side. And in particular, this is taken by some uh, who've uh, analyzed the situation as evidence that neither of the, the two sides, neither the Soviets nor the Americans, were sufficiently worried about a war between their clients in the Middle East, that they were prepared to use the hotline to try and prevent that war. Uh, so that was a case where the hotline was simply irrelevant for a, a very long period in, a, in the buildup to an enormous crisis that resulted actually in a serious war. So the hotline can be ignored. It can be used for purposes other than those for which it was intended, such as the communication of threats, or it can even be misused to augment the cause of duplicitous or uh, aggressive uh, actors who want to uh, use the hotline to advance their interests rather than to contain a crisis. So, Steve, just real quick to kind of take a step back in that context, right, thinking about the various ways that once was essentially a CBM and even uh, an arms control measure Thinking about the the types of situations in which it ended up getting used, I think in your paper you point to instances where you know Kissinger used it for much much different purposes than for nuclear risk reduction. It, it's interesting, I think, for those who are listening, which states actually have hotlines? Can you speak to that very just briefly as we go through this to give folks a sense of how many dyads or or how many nations with nuclear weapons have actually set these up to use these for risk reduction purposes? Yeah, so Moscow has a small set of hotline agreements that include the U.S., France, Britain, and I believe China. And the Chinese, I think, have been the most active in setting these up and have hotlines with the United States, with South Korea, Japan. I believe also there's an agreement to have one with India, although there's been delays in, in setting it up. Uh, India and Pakistan have, have a hotline agreement. There's an inter-Korean agreement that links the North Koreans to the South. I think that that's a quick thumbnail sketch that covers most of the universe of cases. But basically, most of the nuclear-armed states have been willing to participate in one or more, in, in the case of the big powers, multiple hotline agreements. There's one unusual case from the Obama administration in which the United States and India set up a hotline. And that's uh, somewhat distinctive because those are not hostile states, but reasonably friendly states. And it was established in the context not of alarm about decaying relations, but as part of a kind of years-long detente in which U.S. and Indian relations were warming. And it was described by the American officials at the time as reflecting the growing closeness in U.S.-Indian relations and providing an ability to communicate directly at high levels of, of government between these two important powers. So that would be, I would say, a further stretching of the original Hanline concept insofar as it's viewed simply as a mechanism for 
Indian-American relations and communications within the context of those relations. However, I also think that many of the instances in which the hotline has been used in the past, other hotlines in the Soviet-American or or Russian-American hotline have involved conflict between other parties in the Middle East and South Asia and so on that impacted on the interests of and showed some risk of drawing the big outside powers in. Uh, So it was fears about Soviet and American clashes that might be occasioned by the wars in the Middle East that led to a lot of the early uses of the hotline. And of course, in South Asia, we've had a a series of uh, severe crises, including in recent years between India and Pakistan, uh, not to mention earlier in their history, a series of major wars between them. So it is imaginable that there's a crisis management dimension to the Indian and American hotline because the United States is often drawn in as, a, as an interlocutor or a mediator uh, trying to prevent the worst outcomes and calm the situation when India and Pakistan uh, get themselves caught up in an intense crisis. And of course, uh, just in the last weeks, we have seen India and China involved in a border skirmish in which at least some people have been killed. And I think if we lived in more normal times uh, and were not experiencing a pandemic and had something akin to a normal government in Washington and the world was not so gripped in so many other worries, the fact that two nuclear armed states were having an armed conflict over the border between India and China would be capturing a lot more of our attention and our worry. But those are the kinds of situations in which you could imagine that it's useful for the United States and India to have the ability to communicate you know, quickly, uh, reliably, and directly with one another. And it's a fascinating piece of this whole discussion. I think it's something that your paper does a, an incredible job of too, Steve, where I was actually part of those negotiations with between the United States government and the Indian government as the I was actually the senior director on the NSC at the time. And, you know, we were at the moment in a very different context where we had a, a new administration in New Delhi. We were trying to buttress relations between the, the two countries. And one of the mechanisms to try to put in place to avoid some of what in the past had been very publicly, hotly debated issues to have some sort of means where we could speak in a secure manner to try and dial down the temperature and how that interest in setting up that means of communication at, a, at the highest levels between the two governments has taken on entirely different intentions and entirely different nuance. You know, the objections that we've heard about that hotline sense are, you know, if there is a crisis along the lines of, of Doklam or what happens between India and Pakistan and the United States only has that line of communication with the Indians, does it actually exacerbate the tensions in the region? It's a, It's one of these things that as we think about hotlines as a CBM or as an arms reduction measure or risk reduction measure. You've got second and third order effects that, that really aren't part of what goes into the original considerations of why to put these in place. Yeah, as you think through hotlines, you know, I think the project that we've all been a part of has, has at least helped me refine some of my thinking on this, on this question. The utility of a hotline is maximized in, you know, certain very extreme scenarios in which you're under great time pressure and 
the nuclear risks uh, appear to be mounting to extremely dangerous levels and you know military forces are out there in intermingled ways that, that can produce inadvertent pressures for escalation and so on and so forth and then the hotline can be an incredibly valuable uh, you know escape valve it's a, you know it's an emergency mechanism that that helps us kind of slam on the brakes that I think is the the right frame for thinking about maximum utility of a hotline. But as you point out, there are multiple ripple effects and sometimes speed kills, right? I mean, a hotline makes it possible to do things more quickly, but sometimes it's decisions in haste in the context of a crisis that are problematic. Hotlines can help clarify things, but sometimes ambiguity is helpful in giving both sides a kind of graceful escape route. Hotlines can alter both the pace and sequence of events in ways, for example, that preclude certain, the arrival of certain kinds of information that comes through more regular uh, but slower channels. So everything has pluses and minuses. And when you tote up the costs, uh, one can see that there are, are some negatives that might attach uh, to uh, the hotline under certain scenarios. What I would say, though, is that having a hotline in place means that you have that off-ramp if you desperately need it in the midst of a crisis that appears to be careening out of control. And thinking of that way as a kind of insurance policy against the worst outcome in the worst case <laughs> is you know, how you kind of frame the utility of, of these things. The argument isn't that it can't be misused. The argument isn't that it's a panacea. The argument isn't that it will always make things better under all circumstances. The argument is that when you're in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis and your team is telling you there's one chance in three or one chance in, in two of a nuclear exchange by sundown, maybe it's a good idea to be able to communicate with somebody on the, on the other side who really matters and to do so in a sort of quick, reliable and authoritative way. So, you know, when you map out the pluses and the minuses, I think that that insurance policy quality to it is what stands out in my mind as quite compelling. So you talked about this a bit at the top of the pod and, and in some of the discussions we had around your paper. But in establishing their hotline, uh, the U.S. and the Soviets, they had a shared objective kind of forged through the crucible of the Cuban Missile Crisis of avoiding an unwanted war. How important for other hotlines is that sense of a shared objective uh, and experience together to the success of the arrangement and to the durability of those hotline systems? Well, I think that that basic notion is lurking quite often in hotline arrangements. Certainly in the India-Pakistan context, you have two states, both of which have, you know, in the past couple of decades uh, since 1998 become explicit nuclear weapon states and are in the process of slowly but relentlessly developing sort of much more robust uh, nuclear capabilities that are now deployed and becoming more and more sophisticated and more extensive. But also in the case of Pakistan, are harnessed to a first use doctrine that it envisions early use of nuclear weapons to compensate for conventional inadequacies in the event of, of a large conventional war, which is very much akin to the posture that NATO adopted during the Cold War 
in reaction to the perception that the Soviet Union possessed conventional military superiority in in the European theater. What this means is that in the midst of a crisis that raises a serious risk of war, you may be dealing with very short timelines, and you may have a leadership in Pakistan that is making very fateful decisions on the basis of shaky understanding of what the Indians are up to. (laughs) And those are situations in which clarifying the uncertainty and communicating explicitly with the other side and making it clear to both leaderships how close one is to the precipice uh, might be useful. And in those kinds of situations, the existence of hotlines, it, it seems to me, could serve a very valuable palliative function in in addressing extremely dangerous situations. And unfortunately, as anyone who pays much attention to the India-Pakistan relationship knows, those kinds of situations are far from rare. They've had a a series of incidents and crises and and, uh, uh, war scares and so on. So these are not hypothetical concerns in the India-Pakistani case. Now, interestingly, they're one of the situations where their hotline is not aimed in the first instance at heads of state. If my memory is correct, it's uh, principally foreign minister to foreign minister, but it's also hydra-headed. And I believe that there's a link between the um, high military commands of the two sides as well, so that the military can communicate explicitly. And this is, by the way, another dimension of this underlying communication logic uh, that provides a foundation for thinking hotlines are a useful instrument, is that it is rippled through an array of levels, including at the operational military level, where things like the U.S.-Soviet Incidents at Sea Agreement includes mechanisms that allow direct communication between operational military units, so that if you have an incident or a problem it can, in the first instance, be addressed by those protagonists who are closest to the situation, and that gives the militaries themselves an ability to deconflict their interactions. Um, obviously, those kinds of arrangements can always be kicked up the ladder uh, to the highest levels of decision, but that's another application of this, this idea uh, of direct communication being valuable uh, Uh, in escalatory circumstances. Steve, when the normal status of the relationship between nuclear armed states uh, is routinely sort of at the brink or near war, for example, you've just referred to Pakistan and India or uh, even even shorter early warning times, uh, North Korea and South Korea, uh, is there any evidence that hotlines are more or less used in crisis communications, and does such intense use, if it exists in crisis time, portend actually the normalization of crisis rather than perhaps the US-Soviet-Russian model where you learn via a reinforcement effect of sort of major punctuation points uh, in their joint narrative uh, of the need to avoid the brink most of the time rather than just perch there? Yeah, well, when one reads back through the literature on on hotlines, this issue of is a hotline a kind of distinctive 
mechanism, what sets it apart from other means of communication? Uh, Obviously, in the current era, we can all text and WhatsApp and punch in numbers into our cell phone and so on. And so is there something distinctive about the hotline and you know, does it get devalued if it's used excessively? Those, I think, are two uh, related uh, questions. The, the starting point is maybe to think about the Soviet-American context where it really was reserved for emergencies. It was used by the senior officials only on a few rare occasions every few years. Now, then there might be a flurry back and forth of you know, hotline messages. There were I believe 20 or 21 messages sent in the context of the 1967 uh, Mideast War, but that was the first use since the thing had been put in place uh, some four years uh, earlier, and the next use was actually some six years later in the 1973 war and so on. And there has been a sense then that sending a message through the hotline is a sign of the importance of the message. It's meant to symbolize that the situation is viewed as a as a crisis. It's a particularly reliable means of communication, so it's a signal that, that you're sending a message that you're really keen to get through with, without any question. And then there is lurking through all of this a question about uh, survivability of means of communication in intense and particularly in wartime situations. I've spoken mostly so far about the crisis management aspect of communications links, but there are also very important potential applications and implications related to keeping war limited uh, if war were to happen and if war gets started to trying to end the war as quickly and, and with as little disastrous damage as possible. So essentially, war limitation and war termination are two further potential valuable contexts in which hotlines could matter a lot. But in the context of nuclear relationships, nuclear hotlines and nuclear wars, what we're really talking about is communication in the midst of a nuclear conflict. And there's going to be huge damage, huge disruption. Some might be accidental, some might be inadvertent, but it's quite likely that Normal means of communication will be disrupted. It's quite possible that normal diplomatic activities will be impossible. And the idea has been that hotlines would be a more durable and reliable means of communication in the most stressful and dire situations. So that's one piece of it. Now, you raise the question of whether by using the hotline in more routine ways, which at least according to the public accounts, has been at least periodically true in the case of North and South Korea, where they've used it for strategic dialogue and as the sole means of communication, since they they have really been quite cut off from one another at times, sole means of communication for organizing more routine kinds of economic interactions and so on. It may be that the hotline in those circumstances serves other useful purposes, becomes a little bit denatured as a crisis management mechanism. Obviously, it's not something that you've reserved for purely for emergency situations, which is the way that at least some of the hotline arrangements are configured. Well, Steve, let's look a bit more closely at the at the Korean circumstance. From what I know of the history, the mill-to-mill hotline between the United States 
and North Korea and China, then a state of rapidly moving to acquire nuclear weapons. That hotline was actually established in, what, 1953 uh, as part of the armistice. The U.S. introduced nuclear weapons in 1958 to South Korea. Chinese went nuclear in the mid-60s. So in a sense, at the same time as the U.S.-Soviet hotline came into play, there was an already existing infrastructure at the demilitarized zone in Korea. And so there was already between the US and China that infrastructure, which continues today. And I think lots of incidents between the different parties to that conflict used the UN command channel. But separately, as you mentioned, there are, well, I think there are nearly 50 inter-Korean hotlines for managing all sorts of functional inter-Korean issues. This is between North Korea as a non-nuclear and now nuclear state and South Korea as a non-nuclear state that depends on extended nuclear deterrence from the United States. So it's not a a direct nuclear uh, hotline between nuclear armed states between the two Koreas, but it has many of the elements and interlinks with the direct hotline through UN command. This is a completely different model, really, to the US-Soviet and the sort of standard view of a bilateral approach. And it has been in force for, what, nearly 60 years. And now we have the fact that Trump gave Kim Jong-un his personal cell phone to call directly in a crisis. So it's been supplemented by a new kind of hotline in the Trump era. Does this just create more headaches for states because there are so many channels? Or is it, in fact, a more nuanced, calibrated, thick set of communication channels that are actually more apt, perhaps, for managing a crisis that is both multi-party, multi-dimensional, and pretty much routinely at the brink of war as against the U.S.-Soviet relationship, where you had occasional crises where the hotline came into play. Yeah, it it is, as you emphasize, an unusual and very distinctive uh, set of arrangements. And to my eye, and I have to say, Peter, you know, more about the Korean case than I do. But to my eye, it looks as if a whole array of communication arrangements have been set up in lieu of what you might call a more normal diplomatic uh, capacity for interaction. Because the relations were so strained, because any kind of normal diplomatic intercourse was so infrequent and often so unacceptable to one or both of the sides, these communications arrangements became, in a sense, a set of circumventions of the distortions created by the enormous hostility in this situation. And, you know, certainly, I don't think some of those who initially championed the concept of the hotline agreement, famously Thomas Schelling, in the context of thinking about the dangers of a particularly unwanted nuclear war, had in mind the kind of routine use of hotlines for normal communications about what you might call non-crisis issues like economic interactions across the demilitarized zone and that sort of thing. But that whole arrangement in Northeast Asia is truly unique. One can imagine, though, that, for example, the multilateralization of hotlines in South Asia might be advantageous under certain circumstances if, if you think that the United States is likely to be 
a useful and perhaps necessary interlocutor in some intense India-Pakistan crisis. The ability for the United States to communicate with both India and Pakistan via a hotline arrangement could be a useful option in an intense crisis. So that multilateralization piece that exists in Northeast Asia might be something that, that had applications elsewhere. But at some point, it seems to me there's a spectrum where an emergency hotline is stretched so far that it becomes essentially routine communication, if you know what I mean. I mean, they're actually linked. I mean, in, at the height of the 2017 crisis, where we've just heard from Bob Woodward in his book Rage, General Mattis was considering the morality and, and politics of putting uh, 80 nuclear weapons on top of North Korea and detonating them. The space for not going to war was actually carefully preserved by implementing the inter-Korean military agreement struck between Kim Jong-un and President Moon Jae-in, and it's really been that inter-Korean military-to-military and other communication channels that have kept the peace on the nuclear front. So it, it is quite varied. I do think that we should look carefully at this issue of multilateral hotlines because you know, the Korean, South Koreans also have a hotline to the Chinese, a non-nuclear party to what could be a nuclear conflict. And so in effect, we had multiple bilateral hotlines between four or five nuclear armed states party to the Korean conflict in play in 2017 simultaneously. And one question is when you say multilateral hotline, is it time that we start designing hotlines that actually can have not just a bilateral, but you know, multiple parties on the line at the same time, not just a collection of bilateral links? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't know that there's much precedent for genuinely multilateral hotlines as opposed to the, as you rightly described, the collection of bilateral arrangements that exist in Northeast Asia. Although I, I should have said earlier, there is a hotline between uh, Russia and NATO. So NATO as a corporate entity has a hotline agreement with, with Moscow that was set up in 2003. But in situations like in South Asia, where there might be circumstances in which it were useful to be transparent to both sides simultaneously what role the United States was playing, and to allay fears that the United States was not putting its thumb on the scales for one side or the other, some sort of triangular hotline arrangement seems to me could be useful. But one doesn't see anywhere out in the policy agenda these days really many proposals or, or even any proposals <laughs> along those lines. What sort of questions that were raised when the first nuclear hotline was established between uh, Moscow and Washington in terms of the survivability? I mean, these are re relatively fragile links, or are they quite robust? Well, there have been recurrent uh, concerns about the survivability of these links. And, you know, the original hotline was essentially a teletype that was transmitted by cable and it was interruptible by destruction or by accident. And there were a couple of incidents in which cables were inadvertently cut through uh, economic accidents. Later on, the technology evolved in such a way that 
They increasingly rely on satellite communications uh, and so on, but satellites can be destroyed or disrupted. So there have been recurrent concerns at various stages in the technological evolution of hotlines expressing alarm that the physical ability to communicate, that is the technological infrastructure to communicate, might not be sufficiently survivable to permit the desired communication in exactly the scenarios where you would most urgently want to communicate. That is to say, in the midst of a war, in the midst of a circumstance in which uh, nuclear weapons had been used, in a circumstance where you desperately wanted to uh, keep a, a nuclear war limited, or you desperately wanted to end a nuclear war that had got somehow gotten started, that in those kinds of scenarios, you might find yourself unable to communicate via the hotline or, or many other means. Hotlines tend to be more durable and more robust than, than uh, more routine or normal means of communication. So you can imagine that the entire array of communication options could be less available or unavailable in just the kinds of dire scenarios where you have the most extreme need to communicate. So that has been one of the motivations for continuously modernizing and trying to create redundancies in these hotline agreements. But that's been a recurrent theme and a recurrent concern in the history of hotlines has been concern about whether they will actually survive to be functional in some of the scenarios where they're most needed. Sorry, it sounds like the technology is really all over the place, that there's no standard hotline technology or performance standard. They're all just different. That's my understanding. I think the most is known about the U.S.-Russian or, you know, Moscow-Washington link. You know, as technology evolves about every decade or so, it's, it's upgraded in some significant way from teletype to faxes. Uh, from faxes to satellites, from satellites, there's now also an email link, the dedicated email link that has been set up in more recent years. But of course, all of that depends on proper and available functioning of the of the technology, and all of it is destroyable or disruptable. If A, someone tries to destroy or disrupt it, or B, if you're in the midst of some sort of nuclear catastrophe uh, in which the nuclear effects uh, make the technologies of communication inoperable. So in that context, Steve, one of the things that we've definitely talked about in some depth is the resilience of the network in light of the various types of communications takedowns that are likely to, to occur at the outset of a conflict. One of the things that we've also talked about in this, in this same vein, I think you just began to allude to it a little bit, is that in our 21st century technical environment where we've got rapid means for instant communication, the notion of a phone being your recourse when you can text someone via signal via an end-to-end -end encrypted app seems almost, you know, absurd. So was just curious as you've thought through this from a historical perspective, how is a hotline in this context still relevant? And what gain do these heads of state perhaps what gain do they get by using something like a hotline instead of, you know, turning to their cell phone or, you know, something in an in, in encrypted app like Signal? Well, I think that there is, first of all, the, the symbolism attached to the hotline. It's a way of demarcating the, the importance of the communication and the urgency of the situation when one uses the hotline. Secondly, a lot of effort 
has been put into making the hotline as durable and as reliable as possible. So it's more likely to be available under more circumstances than uh, alternative means of communication. Thirdly, it is reliably authentic. And so you can attach a higher likelihood that the message you're receiving is the message that was intended to be sent. And fourth, I would treat it as simply a kind of extra insurance policy that one keeps in place in case you need it because you envision using it in contexts that are so dire that it would seem remiss not to have made the arrangements, right? I think Schelling said in one of his pieces that the ability of leaders to communicate directly and promptly with one another may not exist if no one has bothered to arrange it. And this is arranging it and making sure that it's there. Uh, and maybe it's not necessary in, in some scenarios or some circumstances. And to me, that would be okay. It's a low-cost measure. Uh, and it's this off-ramp that you might need in some of the most dangerous imaginable circumstances. Speaking of bothering to arrange things, are there any nuclear countries out there who don't have hotlines? And would it be very hard to convince them of the merits of using something like Catalink to stay connected and manage crises? I think that the outlier is probably Israel. If it is a party to a hotline or an arrangement, I haven't found any evidence of it. But of course, Israel also does not publicly acknowledge its nuclear capability, its nuclear weapons capability, so long as it retains this ambiguous posture about the possession of nuclear weapons. Very hard to position itself as a as a claimant for a nuclear hotline. I think all the other uh, nuclear weapon states are a party to at least one, if not more, hotline arrangements. The Soviets have hotline arrangements with France, Britain, China, NATO, and the United States. Uh, the Chinese with the Americans, the South Koreans, the Indians, the Vietnamese, the Taiwanese, and the Japanese. And of course, there's India, Pakistan, there's the Korea arrangements, uh, and so on. So pretty much all of the nuclear weapon states and the bigger of the, the great powers among the nuclear weapon states uh, have all hotlined themselves up, so to speak. <laughs> Just a quick follow-up that based on discussions at our workshop, someone made the suggestion in the workshop that it could be a useful prerequisite for being a state with nuclear weapons to also have a hotline with states that you might be an adversary with. Do you think that that's a clever solution or do you think that already exists? Well, right now we don't have too many states that are on the doorstep knocking at the door of, of becoming a nuclear weapon state. Iran may be the most likely possible case. And I think in general, what one has seen in earlier cases, particularly with India and Pakistan, North Korea is such a unique case in so many ways. But there is this notion that we very strongly prefer that you not get nuclear weapons. But if you get nuclear weapons, then we very strongly prefer that you adhere to prudent and responsible standards of custodianship, right? And that includes you know, taking care of the safety and security of your nuclear assets. But it could also be that creating certain behavioral standards 
for those states that acquire nuclear weapons would be desirable as well. And this, this certainly could be one of them. That is to say, if you're going to be a nuclear weapon state, that one of the markers of responsible custodianship is that you fashion appropriate emergency crisis management measures with your potential adversaries to include a hotline. And actually, what you see in places like South Asia is that the Indians and the Pakistanis have been unable and unwilling to fashion any kind of arms control agreements that directly address their force postures, their deployments, their nuclear behavior. What they have been able to put in place is a few confidence-building measures and crisis management mechanisms that you know, take some of the harsher edges off of their relationship. And it may be that that's kind of the starting point of building some sort of management system in a nuclear rivalry. So, Steve, where, where you're sort of heading there is with some kind of global norm or code of conduct for running a nuclear weapons arsenal, that there's sort of a responsible behavior norm, and that in turn would have certain minimum expectations about the technology that you use and I guess some imperative that it be interoperable. And that really perhaps is one of the goals of the Catalink project. Yeah, I think that we have today, if you think about the analogy to nuclear power as opposed to nuclear weapons, there are in fact explicit and formally articulated standards of appropriate custodianship of nuclear power assets. And you can, you know, go on the IAEA website and the International Atomic Energy Agency website and and you know find documents that talk about, you know, keeping your nuclear power plants safe and secure and so on. Uh, There's no equivalent for nuclear weapon states, but what we have is informal interactions, uh, for example, encouraging new nuclear weapon states to utilize nuclear weapons designs that are robust against accidental detonations or misuse by unauthorized personnel. And so even though there's some sensitivity about sharing some of this kind of information across states, uh, things like protective locks, which were known in the American case as permissive action links that prevent nuclear weapons from being used by any unauthorized person who hasn't been given the appropriate codes for the weapon. That didn't happen in the American case for a couple of decades, I believe, but certainly for quite a long time our weapons were not protected in that way. And there's no reason to assume that other states uh, in the early stages of their nuclear weapons status uh, will necessarily employ such mechanisms. But they're hugely desirable. They don't save us uh, from the worst of the nuclear dangers, but they prevent certain kinds of extremely undesirable scenarios. And getting two nuclear-armed states caught up in an intense crisis and not having some way to defuse the crisis seems to me to be a very unappealing <laughs> picture. And uh, you know, if one takes the point that we started with uh, an hour ago, that what hotlines fundamentally represent is an escape hatch, right? An off-road when you're on the road to disaster, then putting those in place in every situation where you can imagine a nuclear crisis arising seems to me like a desirable global objective and a sensible element of what you might call a global nuclear management system. 
as an insurance policy in in these uh, cases. But what one can see is whether you're talking about 1963 and the Cuban Missile Crisis or 1967 and the Mideast War when, when the Soviet Union threatened war, or 1973, when we had yet another Mideast crisis, or the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, or running right on through to the war scare with North Korea in 2017, the various very intense crises in South Asia between India and Pakistan, is that these things are not frequent, but they're not rare either, these intense crises. And they happen over and over and over again. And the likelihood that we're going to traverse all of them successfully forever seems pretty low. And so doing everything we can to maximize our ability to manage those situations seems to me a reasonable precaution, given the magnitude of the damage that any nuclear use uh, would attend. You know, Des Ball, an old friend of mine, and I think Peter's uh, sadly now deceased, but, but one of the leading strategic analysts of his day wrote a piece about one of the best pieces actually out there, although now somewhat dated on uh, hotlines. And he said, this is such a low cost measure and has such a potentially high payoff that it would be criminal not to put these in place and have them available if needed. And if not needed, so much the better, but price we pay is very minimal for having that insurance policy. And that's kind of how I've come to uh, situate uh, the hotline notion in my thinking. Yeah, we fairly vehemently agree with Des Ball and and Tom Schelling and and with yourself on this. I think, Steve, this is a fantastic deep dive into the, you know, the historical context of why this is so important. And really, as you put it there at the end, I think that's absolutely critical. It's an insanely low cost uh, incredibly highly impactful thing for what hopefully is a low probability event, right? But it happens all too often. You look at South Asia, you look at East Asia, you look at increasingly, perhaps even in the Middle East where things are changing rapidly. These are the kinds of things that we need to have in place to prevent those crises. So thank you so much for, for putting the time and, and effort into this this document. I think it really does contribute to the, the discussion and it helps us in our thinking as to, to what we're trying to build here. So thank you. Sure. Well, thank you very much. And I would just close by saying one way of putting bright colors around this idea would be to say, if you don't have it when you need it, tens or hundreds of millions of people could die. And, you know, to refrain from implementing a low cost measure that's obviously so sensible that could have such a high payoff just seems irresponsible to me. Couldn't agree with you more emphatically, Steve. I think that's an absolutely perfect way to wrap up a really great conversation. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast today. And Ben, thanks for for being with us here as well today. It's really great to have you joining us. And thanks for all your support to this overall project as well from the Stanley Center. We really genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, of course. These discussions have been fascinating in so many ways. Thank you again, Steve and Ben, for joining us. As always, thank you to all of our listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode of The Fourth Leg. Until then, be sure to subscribe to the pod. Get us your comments and feedback. Thanks for listening.